0: All right, if you'll take out your insert that says the revelation of Jesus Christ, we're looking at Revelation chapter 7 this morning. My wife and I like to mark time, and so we make plans for a new year. We often sit down the last week of the year, and we think about financial goals we'd like to hit, places we'd like to go. We think about when the kids were young, sort of like maturational goals we'd like to see them move toward, things we'd like to see in our own life, spiritual development things, just all kinds of stuff. And so we were supposed to do that last week, and we didn't. But neither one of us care so much. Because we know this, we've been married almost 30 years. It doesn't matter what goals you set, <laughs> like, things get messed up. It just goes sideways, right? Because you don't, and you know, we do want to set some goals and move ahead, but like whether we said in the last week of 2022 or the first week of 2023, you know, by March they're sideways anyway. So, because you don't really know what's coming at you this year, none of us know. We have a good idea of some things, but there might be great things coming into your life this year you had no idea of. There may be tragedy coming into your life this year of which you are, for which you're not prepared and of which you're not aware. We just don't know the chaos that awaits us in the coming year, just like we didn't know at the beginning of 2022 what was coming in 2022. We just don't know. And some of that may be incredibly encouraging to us. Some of it may be devastating. We'll kind of walk through this all together. We got that but we don't know. We live lives of uncertainty. The text we're looking at this morning, Revelation 7, is this beautiful picture, uh, like a heaven's eye view of the people of God, a heaven's eye view of the church, both on earth and in heaven, uh, in anticipation of the renewal of all things in the new earth. But it's written to a people in the, the original audience. They knew for certain they couldn't control their future. They were weak and that chaos was coming at them all the time. And what's communicated to them in this passage and then to us as well is that in spite of whatever chaos might come to us, the reality is if you're in Christ, you are marked. You are sealed in some way, and we'll talk about what that is. You are known. You are cared for. And sometimes that care doesn't mean removing us from the chaos, but being present with us in it and through it. You're marked and you are known. And Revelation is supposed to be for the people of God an encouraging book, but often it's a confusing book. And we know that. A lot of us have started out reading the book of Revelation and we get to like what we saw a couple weeks ago, the six seals, and we're like, out. I have no idea what this is talking about. It's a challenging book. Well, that's understandable because it's a book of visions that are rooted in a particular time and place. So if I were to give you a modern vision, okay? Let's say I, I had this vision, and see if you can understand what I'm talking about. It's elevated language, right? Not really, because I'm not a very good poet. But it, the vision is something like this, and uh, I, have to, I have to read it because it's so odd, right? And lo, and visions are supposed to begin this way, right? And lo, I beheld a great animal arising from the earth, and the animal was in the form of a donkey dressed in blue, and upon its head was a giant hat, And the brim of the hat held 50 stars, and the hat itself had seven red stripes, and six like it, but were white. And the stripes together were one, and they were the book of history. And, but wait, from the east came another great animal, an elephant riding toward the donkey. The elephant dressed in red, and dressed as the donkey. And the elephant and the donkey made war on each other with the sword of their mouth. And after the war, they rode off together hand in hand. say, now what is he talking about? Now some of you, you're like, okay, I got it, right? So we know things because we are embedded in a particular culture. And we know layered wisdom that we don't even really know we know. Somehow we know that the two ruling parties, however they're ruling parties in democracy, I don't know, but one is signified by an elephant and one is signified by a donkey. We know that. We just know that. We don't know why. Uh, Most of us don't know. There's from a political cartoon in the 1870s that sort of instantiated that in our culture. I still don't know why one is red and one is blue, but that's how it's signified. You know, we might say, okay, a hat that's red, white, and blue with 50 stars on the brim. Ah, the 50 stars. The 50 states. And the red and the white stripes. Those are the, the original 13 colonies, the book of history. Oh, the history of this country. You know, that's a stretch, but that's authorial license, right? Um, now, after I say that to you, if I read that again, oh, and they, what, it mean, what it means they go off to war. Well, they don't really go to war. They have an election. And they slay each other with the sword of their mouth. Like they, they talk death to each other, right? And then they ride off together into the sunset holding hands because at the end of the day, they're all the same. <laughs> so um, that might be my cynical libertarianism coming out. but um, uh, So you know that I'm giving the backstory now. Now, if you hear it again, You know it, right? Lo, I beheld an animal, a donkey dressed in blue upon his head a giant hat. The brim of the hat had 50 stars, and the hat itself had seven stripes of red, and six like them, but white, and the stripes were the book of history. And then from the east there came another animal, a giant elephant dressed in the same manner, but clothed in red. And the donkey and the elephant made war upon each other by the sword of their mouth, and they rode off hand in hand. You say, oh, I know what that means. Now, but now imagine you were to go to a remote tribe in Southeast Asia, and learn the, the local dialect, and in their language say what I just said. They would be like, what? They wouldn't know about left and right, Republicans and Democrats, donkeys and elephants. They wouldn't know any of that. They would know an elephant, like I remember an elephant. It would be a, such a stretch. There's a, so much interpretative ground, interpretative ground to cover. And then imagine that you go to that Southeast Asian village in 2,000 years. Okay? That's what the book of Revelation is to us. Like, it's a different culture a long time away with metaphors and word pictures that are foreign to us, so we want to resist the temptation to read Revelation and just say, well, what does this mean to me? Because it doesn't really matter what it means to us. What matters is what it meant to the original hearers, and that was rooted in what they knew, the Old Testament, and what they were experiencing in their time. So in order for us to say, what does it mean now, we have to say, what did it mean then? What did it mean to them? And we say the, the main way we get into this is letting what interpret the book of Revelation? Anybody has been here for a few weeks? I heard everybody say the Old Testament loudly and clearly, okay? The Old Testament interprets the book of Revelation for us largely. So two weeks ago, Before Christmas, we saw in Revelation 6 the breaking of the six seals. The lamb, Jesus, uh, takes the scroll of history and breaks the six seals, and with each seal is broken. Something else happens in history, and the first thing we saw is four horses ride out of different colors, and we saw these horses are emblematic emblematic of destruction and evil and sin, and though God permits this, He's not hes not authoring it. He's not the author of evil, but in his sovereign wisdom, he permits it to be used for his redemptive purposes, though a lot of that's lost on us as to how it happens. But there's these four horses ride out, and one of them signifies conquering and conquerors. One of them signifies... Uh, inter-people group warfare and civil war, one of them signifies famine, one of them signifies pestilence, and we saw how these are, these are dynamics that work themselves out in history with multiple manifestations all through the ages, from the time of Christ's first coming until his second coming. They, they're dynamics that work themselves out in history. Just because they're seen sequentially doesn't mean they're sequentially ordered. They, they work themselves out in history, and then we saw the fifth seal where that Evil ends up martyring God's people. There are those who lose their life for their testimony to the Word of God and to the Lamb. And then the sixth seal is God's response to all of this, healing the earth of its malady of sin by bringing judgment, which is what judgment is. Judgment is an act by God. It's an act of love toward the earth He created, removing sin from it. Right? That's very, it's very destructive to those who are set themselves against him, but it's an act of love toward his creation. That's the sixth seal. So that's where we're going to pick it up, Revelation 6. And uh, as a couple weeks ago, this is a long text, so we'll read it in chunks and uh, we'll read it back and forth. So the, I'll read the regular text and you read, if you will, together, the bold text. And we're just going to start out by reading the the top part there, Revelation 6. When he opened the sixth seal, then all this judgment came out. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. Who can stand? So this amazing, terrifying vision, even the great and powerful people of the earth, the most powerful, are calling out to the rocks, may you fall on us so we can escape this judgment. They're like praying to the earth, come and swallow me up. And so that's a terrifying vision. And so the natural question then is like, well, if these incredibly powerful people can't stand against this, then what about this little ragtag group of people called the Way of Jesus who are clear that they don't have any power? What about them? Who can stand in the face of this? This terrifying vision of judgment. Who can stand? That's the question. And then Revelation 7 answers that question. Who can stand? And it gives what we might call an encouraging interlude to the church. This is another literary feature in Revelation in the... In the seals, in the trumpets, in the bulls, toward the end, the sixth and the seventh, there's a timeout. Come up. Let's see the vision again. You know, it's like you're telling, you know, your kid a a, a story that's very harrowing and they're getting afraid and you stop and say, okay, look, hold on. It'll be okay. Let me finish the story. Okay, this is what's happening. Calling timeout saying, let me give you a big picture of the church before we finish the story. Who can stand? and remember we said Revelation is a series of visions, the way we understand it to be, uh, as we go through the book, it's a series of visions where we look at all all of history between the first and second coming of Christ from different perspectives. It's not all sequential, and we said a few weeks ago, there is in America... For the last 150-ish years, a way of reading the book of Revelation that pushes it all forward, not just forward to the original hearers, but forward to us, forward to everybody. It's almost all out there in the future. And that makes for good speculation. It's just not how anybody ever read the book before. Right? It's very new in church history and almost all all only in America and currently on TV with TV preachers. I'm sorry, right? I would promise you, in in the academy and theological circles, that view is dying a very quick death. It's going away. But it's, if you turn on the Prophecy Teachers on TV, please don't. But if you do, that's what you'll see, okay? Um, that pushes it all off into the future. If you'll turn to your back of your insert... I also put a structure of the seals. Now, in Revelation, we're talking about all of church history, and then within that, each portion of that does the same thing. If you were a real nerd, you would call this a fractal literary structure right? Fractal pattern, the, the large is the same thing contained in the small and the small and the large. And it's a literary pattern. It's so beautiful. But it's kind of, anyway, so it, the, in the big picture is the small picture. In the small picture, this little thing of the seals, you've got seal one, two, three, four, and five. These are dynamics happening all through history. There's always conquering going on. There's always famine. There's always pestilence. There's always civil war type of things going on. There's always people being martyred by their faith. John just prayed for some of them. Seal six is God's response of final judgment, and seal seven then is just heaven's response of stunned silence. The interlude that we're talking about in Revelation 7 is also going on this whole time. It's God saying to his people, whatever chaos comes to you, I want you to know something. You are sealed, and we'll talk about what that is. You are sealed so you can stand in this age and in the age to come. And if you're in this we would take this to ourselves and say, The Lord seals us so that we may stand in this age and in the age to come. Now, what does it mean that we are sealed? Okay, let's look at Revelation 7, 1 through 3. We'll again re- read this back and forth. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and seas, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their All right. So... Remember the question leading into this is who can stand? We see two groups standing, one of these angels doing the bidding of God, and a little bit later we're going to see it's the people of God standing as well. So you have four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. That's just a literary phrase from like the four directions. Holding back the four winds. Now, what is that talking about? Well, again, we say, what does it mean to us? No, we say, what do we say? We're trying to figure out what the four winds means. Where do we look? So good, thank you. All right, so uh, in fact, in the very same passage that we get the original vision of those colored horses in Zechariah 6, we find that he calls those horses also the four winds. Why? I don't know, I didn't write it, but it's what it says, right? That's what it says, probably because winds cannot be controlled by people. This dynamic of evil and persecution and destruction and famine and pestilence, we really can't control that. It goes as it will. But what this picture here is the the angels are holding back the winds. And we say, are angels really holding back winds? No, it's a vision. Just like uh, our governor is not an elephant, right? I mean, he is, but he's not. Right? He's a yeah, he's a Republican, right? So he's, a, he's not a really an elephant, but he would be pictured as that. These angels are pictured as holding back four winds, as if saying, before any of these riders ride in, before, pri- uh, prior to any destruction, I want you to know this, I'm doing something else. I am sealing my people, whatever that might mean. That's of my utmost importance that I seal my people in this vision before anything, you know, before the the angels who had authority to let go, let go. And uh, so there's these angels holding back the winds, and another angel comes from the rising of the sun. uh, What direction does the sun rise from? East. In the Bible, this is something just like a little extra. Redemption always comes from the east. I don't know if you know that. Adam and Eve are exiled east out of Eden. So we're then from all the time, uh, coming back from exile is coming back from the east, from the rising of the sun, from the east. Uh, in Ezekiel, the, the Shekinah glory leaves the temple toward the east, and in the vision of his return, it comes back from the east. Christ returns. We look to, uh, look to the east, from Jerusalem anyway. When Christ rides into Jerusalem on the triumphal entry, guess which direction he comes from? The east. There's all these things, a couple other things in Isaiah 2, maybe one in Jeremiah, about him, re- redemption coming from the east. And up from the coming from the east is an angel who says, before anything else happens, we're going to seal the people of God uh, on their foreheads. Now, what is going on here? What is this sealing of the people of God on their foreheads? Okay. In the Old Testament, the priests when they were serving God in the temple, wore a turban. And on the turban was a gold plate that said, Holy to the Lord. Chadosh El Yahweh writes, Holy to the Lord. God's name was on their forehead, and it said they were set apart to the Lord with this on their forehead. You say, well, that was the priest in the Old Testament. Aha. But remember what it says in Revelation 1, the introduction to the book, to him who loves us, Jesus, and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. The work of Jesus for you is to move you into this status of being a priest. That means you represent God to the world and the world to God through prayer. You are a priest in Christ. Priests had this on their forehead. There's also a vision in Ezekiel 9. This is a vision that was given to Ezekiel is a particularly idolatrous time in Jerusalem's history. They were really sideways, worshiping idols. And God had a man or possibly an angel go through the city in this vision and mark those who were genuinely mourning for the sin with a mark on their forehead. And then judgment was brought on those who didn't have the mark for their idolatry. So there's a, there's a history. John would have known this. He would not have said, I wonder why it's the forehead. He knows why it's the forehead. It's, it's part of his culture. Uh, but for the Christian, what is the seal of God? We don't have to wonder about this either. Paul tells us explicitly in Ephesians 1. Put this at the end of your, your scripture text. Ephesians 1, in him, Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The actual seal of God is the spirit. Right? That's what the, he's saying. A primary concern, before I bring judgment or healing on this earth, I'm sealing my people with the spirit. And I think we, we don't need to have this like a chronological thing. This is just what God does. And I think we're seeing his, the importance of this. There's a nice little Trinitarian thing going on here, too. If the, if the seal is the spirit in Revelation 14.1, 14, 14.2, 14, 3, somewhere in there, like, it says what's written on their forehead is the name of the Lamb and the Father. So you have the spirit who is the name of the Lamb and the Father. I don't know how all that works, but it's a like, nice Trinitarian thing. So what we have here, backing up, is a group of people indelibly marked by God's personal name on them in the midst Of all these seals being broken, conquering, warfare, pestilence, plague, famine, martyrdom, God says, I want you to know first my concern is this, I've marked you, I know you, my name is upon you, you're mine. Let's start there. And then you have the ability to stand against all this stuff. One of the the writers I referenced, encouraged you to read his commentary, Greg Beal, writes this. The sealing enables God's people to respond in faith to trials through which they pass so that these trials become the very instruments by which they are strengthened in their faith. The sealing enables God's people to respond in faith to the trials through which they pass so that these trials become the very instruments by which they are strengthened in their faith. The Holy Spirit allows us not to say, well, I'm glad I went through that. No. But allows us in the midst of trial to respond in faith so that we are more rooted and deeply grounded in God's care and his love and our dependence on his grace. That's the work of the sealing spirit. For those who do not have this seal, Beale writes, the same trials that purify God's servants result in the hardening of the ungodly, and their responses. How dare you, God, allow this? So it's the work of the sealing work of the Spirit. It doesn't zip us out and prevent us from going through difficulty, but in the midst of difficulty, empowers us to respond in faith. So those things actually make us deeper people with bigger souls. The seal itself is an ancient designation for both authenticity and ownership. Ownership. It was not uncommon for those who were not indentured servants but permanent slaves in that culture to be tattooed on their forehead with their owner's name. Now, this is not justifying that. It's a terrible practice. It's drawing on a cultural uh, cultural memory to communicate that you are, <laughs> you are tattooed with the name of God on your head. His own name the spirit of God except this bondage this slavery is one that leads to life because the one who is the life is saying to us in that you're mine and I'm putting my name upon you which means you're one of my sons or you're one of my daughters I've got you so much so I'm putting my name upon you forever now by the time we get to Revelation 13 we see another piece to this puzzle everybody gets a mark everybody gets a mark it's either the mark of God or the mark of the beast. And it's not some computer chip in your hand, okay? God, Lord have mercy. Okay, so uh, as I said a couple weeks ago, the Left Behind series is great fiction, and that's what it is. So it's a mark. It's just, it, seems, it signifies identification. Either we identify with the risen lamb or we identify with that which is against the risen lamb. That because Jesus says, I am Lord, it creates a crisis for the whole world because we can either respond, I see that, I worship that, or we can respond, no, or we can say, well, I'm just going to take a neutral position. The problem is he's made a positive statement. If we take a neutral position to him saying, I am Lord, that's saying you're not Lord. Right? Jesus creates a crisis for everybody. That's why the picture here is that everybody is serving somebody. Everybody has something that's uppermost in their affections, and if it's them who's uppermost in their affections, it's actually serving the beast. So, uh, now we're not saying everybody is as bad as they can be. It's just that everybody worships something. Am I, we might stop and say, application, how comfortable are you with being identified first, foremost, primarily, and only by the divine name in a world that is not hospitable to that. Sometimes we don't have have to face a lot of what the first century Christians faced, what the Christians in Uzbekistan faced that John just prayed for. It doesn't mean there's not actual battle going on. You know, it's hard. When you're a young person, it is hard. You know you're old when you say phrases like young person? I'm sorry. Um, (laughs) When you're young, it is hard to be, no. It is not possible to be thoroughly popular with your peer group and follow Jesus. It's not. We want to be seen as popular. We don't want to be seen as out of step. We get a little bit older and we actually don't want to be out of step. We have a concern for our world and we don't want to be out of step. And the problem is we have a world that just relabels things that are basically biblical, it says they're out of step. And all the world has to say is say, well, see, you're being unloving or intolerant or patriarchal. You're like, well, I don't want to be that. It's hard to follow Jesus and be in line with this world. In fact, it's not possible. You get to be a little bit older. There's this extreme pressure to cave to the world's systems of money, of politics, of power, Right? of finding identity in our work, like a a job can ever tell us who we are. You get older, it's incredibly difficult not just to grow cynical with the whole project and to keep growing hopeful hopeful and soft in the work of the Lord in this world. It's hard to follow Jesus. It's hard to be named by the divine name, holy to the Lord, set apart in this world. But so we are. So we are. Verse 4, verse 4, and I, you don't have any reading on this one, it's kind of boring anyway, so, okay, Uh, I heard the number of the seals, and God's like, okay, who's going to be sealed? And John's like, I heard the number of the sealed, didn't see it, I heard it, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph. 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. So he hears it, and then he's going to see it next. Now this is a literary device in Revelation. We've We've already seen this remember Taylor preached on a couple weeks ago, John hears the lion of the tribe of Judah and he turns expecting to see Aslan, you know. He turns and he sees a lamb standing as though slain not what he expected to see upon hearing line of tribe of Judah and seeing it. So John hears 144,000. He's going to see that group in a second, but first just the hearing of it. He hears the number of it, 144,000. Now that you, you say, that's a very tidy number. That's clever, and we know already now, okay, r- numbers mean something in Revelation. This, this is speculation. Some would think, well, this is 12 tribes. In Revelation 21, you have the New Jerusalem, 12 foundation stones, 12 gates, the name of the 12 tribes and 12 apostles. 1,000 is a number of t- completion, so 12 times 12 times 1,000, that's 144,000. It's just speculation. We don't know. I think that's pretty good, but we don't really know. I think what's being communicated here is that actually this is an exact number that God knows. It's a perfect number, perfectly kept and known by the Lord. The church, his people, in the midst of all kinds of chaos, he's like, "I know you. I've got you." It's not a limiting number, like if you're one hundred forty-four thousand and one. Sorry, it's like it's it's like I know exactly my people, exactly. You are known exactly. The number of his people are known exactly. He already told us that in the seal, the fifth seal. And the casual reader might just say, "This is like, oh, aren't these the tribes of Israel?" No, they're not actually. There are some of them. They're not the tribes of Israel as the tribes of Israel are listed. I don't know if you caught that. For one thing, Judah is the first tribe listed. Judah is never the first tribe listed in the tribal listings in the Old Testament. Why might Judah be the tribe listed first? Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Maybe that's why. There were two tribes in the Old Testament... Like, most of them were really messed up. But at the, t- the tribe of Dan and Ephraim were especially bad, especially idolatrous. They're northern tribes. They're just, like, lost. They did not worship Yahweh at all. And did you see where they are in here? Actually, they're not in here. The particularly idolatrous tribes of the Old Testament, gone. Those sons born uh, that were, like, the also-rans, they never get any credit. They're actually lifted up to the top of the list. And then, uh, let's see here, Joseph is called his own tribe. Levi is called his own tribe, which was they didn't have land allotments, Levi. What's going on? A couple things. One, the Bible routinely refers to the church, the New Testament church, as the reconstituted Israel. That's just one of the things that's happening here. But also, I think what's happening is like many that you expect to be there are, some you expect to be there are not. Like, wait, where's Dan and Ephraim? Where'd they go? And then some you don't expect to be there, they happen to be there. Look, there's a tribe of Joseph. Who knew? I don't know. This is speculation, but possibly from we get God's vision of the church. Many, many who we from our perspective, we say, oh, they're part of God's people. Like, oh yeah, that's right. Some who bear the outward marks of the people of God, even the outward sign of the people of God, being that baptism, may actually not have inward regeneration, inward work of the heart. They may actually not be part of the people of God. Some that we wouldn't expect are. You know, they might get to one day in heaven or in the new earth, you'd be like, dude, you're here. <laughs> oh, who knew? he's like, back at you. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, your life was really messed up. But then again, I didn't know where you were coming from. And then again, and having a not messed up life isn't the gospel. Knowing Christ is the gospel. So this is a, in one sense, it's a group that's, oh, that's understandable. In one sense, it's a group that, oh, there's a little surprise there. So it's a, it's a very tidy number. I'm going to say it's a perfectly known group. He hears it and then he turns and he sees the group, just like he did with the lion, right? It's the same thing. What does he see when he turns? Uh, Where are we at? Okay, verse 9 through 12. After this, I looked and beheld a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever. All right, so he turns. He hears the number 144,000. He turns and he sees a huge number nobody can number. Now, some commentators suggest, well, John was from an earlier age. 144,000 is that number nobody can number. Uh, we call that chronological snobbery, where we just. Consider people who were born before us were dumber, right? Read Plato. Read Nicomachean Ethics. Aristotle. Read the old stuff, okay? You won't think they're dumb. Um, John lived in a time, he knew what 144,000 was. The Roman Colosseum held as many people as Lucas Oil Stadium. And they all got tickets. Right? The, uh, a structure called Circus Maximus, built in 329 B.C., had seating capacity for at least 150,000 people. All who would get tickets and attend these things, like chariot races and circuses. Right? They got tickets. They could number that number. It's a huge number. And it's picking up on language God gives to Abraham, where he says, You will be the father of many nations, and your descendants will be as many as the sand of the seashore and the stars of heaven, if anybody could number them. Implied, They cannot. And we come to the New Testament, we see this those who have the faith of Abraham. Those who believe in the Messiah are considered the children of Abraham. And that's, a, a, to John, an uncountable number. Now, there's a number, right? But like, even if it's a billion, that's pretty much an uncountable number for any person. And if you counted one person per second to a billion, that's like 31 years. Like, nobody's going to do that, right? But the, so, um, I don't know, it's, it, there's an, it's a huge number, not 144,000. Abraham is going to be the father of many nations. And you know, that's exactly what we have here. For every tribe, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And to me, this is just a beautiful picture of the body of Christ. This is, this is, our, this is our brothers and sisters. So much richness in this picture. One, the beautiful thing here is that the heavenly distinction and diversity in the body of Christ is still recognizable in this heavenly vision. People don't all look the same, talk the same, have the same languages. How do we know that? Because he said they have different languages, right? They all different tribes and languages and tongues and nations. John's like, wow, there's, there's so many people. And think, remember, he's, he's this first century Jewish Christian from his little tiny group. And he's like, "Oh." This is my people, this unnumbered uh, number, this unnumbered group of people from every tribe and tongue and language. There's people from this background and that background and this language and that language. I don't know what that language is, but this is my brother or this is my sister. Right? it's, uh, and, you know, what's not said, which needs to be said today, is like, oh, and every color. Today we need to say that, and this color and that color. Um, and the reason it doesn't say that is John didn't think that way. You know, the Bible never, t- refers to people based on the level of melanin in their skin. Never, not once. It's really concerned about where they come from, country of origin. But not, all that's like an invention of about 17th century Europe to justify African slave trade uh, and economic practices that are devastating. Um, So we need to say today, (laughs) the people of God are diverse and beautiful. And in the new earth, they still are but they have some similarities. One, they're all standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They're standing. That means, who can stand? That was the question. Who can withstand this judgment? Oh, the people of God. They, you, marked by the Spirit, are not touched by that judgment that heals the earth of this sin. Your sin is not touched by that because it's already been touched by Christ. Christ standing in his presence as well. They are clothed in white robes. Already in the book of Revelation, we see white robes are a reward for endurance, but going back further into Zephaniah 3, white robes are a picture of complete forgiveness, complete covering, and complete wholeness. And we get this picked up. It's like, oh, these are the righteous robes of Christ. We get that later in this passage. And in some ways, this is begging us to say, can we use our imagination and just see the righteous robes of Christ that we currently wear from God's perspective? If you could see, Christian, if you could see the righteous robes of Christ with which you have been clothed, if we could get a hold of that in our soul, I think what would happen over time is that guilt melts away and the shame melts away. And the need for covering with other things melts away because we say, I'm covered. Anxiety begins to melt away. At the same time, what happens is endurance begins to swell and confidence begins to grow. And a joyful ease and vigor begin to grow. Part of me wants just to stop right there and say, do you know what you've been clothed with? This is the gospel, Christ gave his life to clothe us with his life. And this, though this diverse, beautiful uh, picture of God's people, they're diverse, they're clothed with all these same robes, the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. And they all have palm branches in their hands, calling to mind both the Feast of Booths in the Old Testament and the triumphal entry of Jesus where they waved palm branches and said, Hosanna in the highest. The palm branches were a national symbol of Israel, the reconstituted church. You're probably identifying, signifying identification with the people of God, the palm branches. And crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In a parallel passage in Revelation 14, this group shows up again, and that's called a new song known intimately to those who sing it. And now, right, we get the more clear we get on our own sin, the more we see it, the more we see the depth of it, the more we're stunned by God's salvation and his graciousness to us. Like, Lord, it's all you. Salvation belongs to our God. I didn't do anything. You are the giver. You are the achiever. Father is by your plan. Jesus by your atoning work. And Spirit, you've applied it to my life. And here's what I do, nothing. I open my hands and say, thank you, Lord. And the more I see of my sin, the more I'm stunned by your generosity and one day in glory we will see perfectly and be perfectly stunned. Until that day, we confess and ask for forgiveness and receive forgiveness, insurance of pardon. All of these things mentioned here, the seal, the robes, palm branches, song of salvation, are things that we fully experience in the future and currently have possession of We taste now with anticipation of fullness later. The fact, if you believe in Christ, if you say Jesus is beautiful, he is my Savior, that is because the Spirit of the living God has come into your life and opened your eyes and the eyes of your heart and you said Jesus is beautiful. That is the work of the Spirit, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians. You've already been getting to taste of this. That's the sign that you've been marked. You believe in Jesus. You will fully embrace that in the coming age. This uh, righteous robes of Christ, one day we won't have to use our imagination and to pull it to ourselves by our frail faith. It will have a deep sense of being stand fully clothed in Christ. These palm branches, like identifying with the body of Christ, we're here, we're going to take communion, that's great. We love each other, we take, kind of, we lay, we take you know, uh, vows of membership, and that's all good, and we're trying to build a good community, and that is a good thing. Not like it will be, though. It'll be so much better. And all these stupid divisions in the body of Christ will be washed away. Because we got the same clothes and the same song and the same seal. Same song of salvation. We worship now. We sing. We've been doing that. We will do that. Uh, This is in in anticipation of a greater song we'll sing. Now, I, I should have said this earlier. This is a vision, right? So the overly literalistic interpretation of this whole thing that sees all of eternity as an eternal worship service. Like, that's not what's being communicated here. What's being communicated is the centrality of the Lamb and this. What our hope is right now in distress, whatever distress may be, what our hope will be tomorrow, what sets us apart to God in this world, what brings actual unity in the body of Christ at the end of the day is the seal we bear, the clothes we wear and the song we sing that's what it is we will, we will take all of that to ourselves in fullness we can't even imagine in the next chapter but right now by the power of the spirit and the gospel of Christ we get to taste of it and we are invited to drink more and more deeply verse 13 then one of the el- oh here we go then one of the elders addressed me saying I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, That is the final vision. That's, should that reminds you of what's said in Revelation 21. If you forget, it's written on our back wall back there. This is the picture of the fullness of the end. These are those coming out of what's called here the great tribulation. There is a way of reading the scripture that pushes all that in the future. I don't. That's so unnecessary. John says in uh, John or Revelation 1, I John, your brother in the tribulation. <laughs> it's going on. It's been going on since the first advent of Jesus. We'll continue on since the second advent of Jesus. It's any trouble. And Satan knows his time is short. If I'll just read to you in closing here. Revelation 12. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. Now, If you remember in the ministry of Christ, the gospel goes out and he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Satan has been thrown down and that his power has been limited and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So what this means is since the coming of Christ, Satan has has limited power, but he knows this is the last chapter and his time is short. I've had the same email account since 2005, Gmail. So I'm on a lot of people's mailing lists. Do you know what happens the last week of the year to all these nonprofits? I swear, guys, I got 350 requests for funds in the last week. Why? Why? They know their time is short, right? Like it's the last week. You can get it in before the tax deadline. This is your last chance to give. And you're like, oh, thank you. I was just looking for another chance to give. I haven't heard of you from you in 10 years, but now your time is short, so you're acting in urgency, right? I totally get that. I would do the same thing if I was raising funds. I get it. Satan knows his time is short. The next act of Christ is the last act of the work of death and destruction in this world. We don't know when that is. That's known to the Lord, not known to us, not known to Satan, but his time is short. So that tribulation is intense. How do we overcome him? The seal we bear, the clothes we wear, and the song we sing. I don't know what's coming in your life this year. I certainly don't know what's coming into my life this year. I don't know what will make it difficult for me to stand or for you, but I do know this. I do know how we will stand the seal, the clothes, and the song. The things we get to taste now in anticipation of the full feast that's coming. One of the ways we press that onto our soul in New City communities, is we come to the communion table every week where it is a taste of the full good thing in anticipation of the future coming fullness. If you're in Christ by faith, if you've been marked by the Holy Spirit, if, you've, if God has opened your eyes to where you say, Jesus is my Savior and I love him, I want to invite you to come to the table. This table is open.